Shay Nadira, she's the empress who tells it like it is. Now, straighten up your crown and be elevated through conversation. Conversation with the royal empress. Welcome to this, to this week's podcast. This is Dr. Hakima Jaha Muhammad. Joining me today is my fellow Royal Empress, Akila and Lakashe. Peace, everybody. Peace. <laughs> All right. Today's topic is, how has the system of white supremacy affected the mental health of Black America? The racism of white America has uh, has affected us, but today we brought in a special guest to go in depth and, and to help understand why white supremacy has affected us mentally and to also discuss what we need to do to overcome it. Today's guest is someone that I've been knowing for over 20 years, um, someone that I, I admire and respect and was very instrumental in inspiring me to go back to school to get my doctorate degree. Um, I want to introduce to you Dr. Steffi Turner. Greetings. Welcome, Dr. Steffi. Thank you, thank you. Dr. Turner, I'm going to read your bio for our listening audience. So, Dr. Steffi Turner holds a doctorate of clinical psychology and a master's of clinical psychology from Argosy University. Illinois School of Professional Psychology. Dr. Steffi Turner also received a Master's of Science in School Guidance and Counseling from Chicago State University and a Bachelor's of Science in Psychology from University of Arkansas. Her postdoctoral training was at the Arkansas State Hospital Forensic Psychology Program. Her specialty is determining a person's competency to stand trial and determining not guilty by reason of insanity. Dr. Turner has worked as a psychologist providing treatment to adults, adolescents, and children in various settings such as forensic and psychiatric hospitals, outpatient, outpatient clinics, prisons, and for the military. Wow, it's very impressive. She has also worked as a professor of developmental psychology at the University of Arkansas at Monticello Dr. Turner dissertation clinical research project was titled The Cognitive and Psychosocial Basis of Racial Inferiority 2001. 
She was awarded a fellowship at the Illinois School of Professional Psychology where her focus was on multicultural issues and racial disparity. Wow. <laughs> wow. I have to say wow again. Yeah. I'm, I'm very impressed with that one. Yeah, did all that while I was in the nation too at the same time. Here yeah. mm -hmm. so you did all this while you were a member of the Nation of Islam. Woo! Get so my doctor, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh my God! If it wasn't for the nation, I wouldn't. I don't think I could have uh, achieved it. You know, it taught me a lot of discipline, to channel my anger and stuff. So, wow. To, uh, it taught me refinement. Okay. Now, now that I read your bio, is there anything that you would like to add, or like to say? I'm going to add one more sentence to your bio. Okay. okay. I'm going to put matchmaker because you are yeah. very instrumental. And, 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 and me and my husband coming together, yeah, I got to call you the oracle. I got to add that in there, too. Um, you were very instrumental in, in me and my husband getting together. You spoke highly of him and said, he, this is a good catch, sis. So I got to add that last statement in your bio. You got to add matchmaker on that. Yeah, that's true. I was thinking of that this morning because both of you are with my friend. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so thank you very much, sister. And if there's anything you would like to 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 add to your bio or is anything you would like to say to our listening audience before we start our interview? I think that's just about it, you know, uh, except for just, you know, I think me being in the nation of Islam um, while I was getting my uh, doctorate degree that helped me uh, with the discipline helped me a whole lot and it helped me um, to channel my anger that I had towards, uh, you know, white people coming from Arkansas and growing up in a very, um, Poor, the poorest uh, region in the United States, the Delta. So I saw a lot of racism firsthand. And so I was extremely angry. You probably remember that. You know? so, so to me, the, the nation was like a um, high tech behavior modification program. So it helped me to you know, channel my anger into something more positive and go to school and focus and get my doctorate degree. So I'm grateful for that. So that was my therapy. Like I said, you have a, a question for Dr. Turner? Oh, well, as I'm listening to you, hey, Dr. Turner, first of all, me and Steffi go way back to, yes. I've been knowing you for over 20 years as well, yes. and it's a blessing mm -hmm. to have you on the show. I thought it would be an awesome idea, and so I'm just happy. I feel really at home. I love when we are able to interview um, people and we can have that connection, and yeah. so I'm looking forward to this evening as you were talking and I, I listened to you say um towards the end um you mentioned that um you were able to develop a level of discipline and it helped you to get through your program um mm -hmm. and it helped you to channel some of the anger now some of our listener listening audience might be surprised to hear that because some may think that it would have done the opposite, you know, channeling your anger against the anger that you had towards white people coming, growing up in the South. Mm -hmm. um, how is that possible when, you know, we hear that that's not necessarily what the nation has us to do? You know, we hear a lot of these stereotypes we hear, mm -hmm. you know, that we're taught to just hate white folks and take all of our energy and you know, use it towards um, another race of people. So can you just kind of clarify that? Because I'm yeah. sure somebody may have that. They might have been like, what? Helped you exactly. to channel that energy. What? So tell us exactly. more about that, Dr. Steffi, please. Yes. Well, um, I didn't need any help, uh, you know, to have any negative feelings toward white people. Uh, that was programmed in me 
from uh, my earliest memory as you know as a child my mother uh is still a maid she's 85 years old so she uh, cleans houses for white people i come from a family of servants so my grandfather was a sharecropper and my my mother is a maid so i watched her you know work for white people and they were very um i grew up in a very racist environment where we were called nigger you know all the time i was um at the age of 10, I was uh, outside and some white boys shot me in the chest with a, a BB gun right in my breast that they were starting to develop. And I remember witnessing my mother uh, a sense of powerlessness because she tried to go to tell my, the little white boy's parent what they had did to me. So she showed them the wound, showed his mother, and she just looked at her son and just blew cigarette smoke in my mother's face and said, told her son, don't do it again. And so that was it. But, you know, they continued to, you know, taunt me, bully me and bully us, but it was nothing my mother could do about it. So we had to just stay away from them. So I watched my mother say yes, ma'am, to um, young white girls um, that was younger than me, because that was the protocol, the norm in the South. So this white family she works for, the young girl is four years younger than me. So my mother would say to her, no, ma'am, yes, ma'am. I had to watch that all my life. Still see it when I go home. So I was always pretty angry towards them. I was um, initially afraid of them. And then as I got older, the fear turned into just, you know, anger and rage. So I started having like blackout rages toward white people in eighth grade. And I became violent towards them. So I kind of had a conduct disorder. Uh, and as a teenager, by the time I hit puberty, I should have been diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder and then later conduct disorder. But I never got any treatment or help. Sports helped me, and I was very uh, smart academically. That helped me. So I went to college, graduated, joined the nation, still had that rage. And so being in the nation, we were taught to look within ourselves and to, you know, to deal with our own feelings, our own uh, issues, and to be responsible for our behavior and our conduct. So the nation taught me the history of my relate, our relationship with white people, but ultimately it was up to us as a person and as a race to, you know, to break that, um, that sense of uh, fear and powerlessness that we had, uh, you know, in relation to white people. So I had to accept my own um, feelings and do something about it myself, which was not to waste my time on hating them, but to just do better for myself. Thank you so much for um, providing us with that clarity. I think mm -hmm. it's really important, you know, that people hear that because sometimes when we constantly hear things over and over again, we believe, to be we believe that they're true. Um, and it's just a lot of, you know, misinformation out there. So mm -hmm. I just want to thank you so much and, yes. you know, for clearing that up. And thank mm -hmm. you for just being brave, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. Kind yeah, of that's a lot. Just saying it. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. true. That, that is a lot um, that one has to deal with, especially, you know, growing up as a child in the South. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Southern racism is a lot different, you know, from the racism yeah. that one may experience mm -hmm. in the North. Your background and what you've experienced mm -hmm. really qualifies you to address this topic today. I mean, mm -hmm. um, you're mm -hmm. coming up from an environment in which you experience extreme racism mm -hmm. to be educated about it and to go out in the world to educate us and teach others is amazing. I want to go right to our question of how has white supremacy 
affected the mental health of Black Americans? Well, uh, one thing is definitely uh, affected our self-esteem and our self-concept. And, um, and, you know, to have, to, to make us have low self-esteem and a poor self-concept. And, you know, self-esteem and self-concept are two different things. Uh, self-esteem is how you feel about yourself and self-concept is how you view yourself. And so because of the labels and the messages we've gotten from the dominant society is that, you know, it's, it's a lot of negativity, you know, black people are seen as, you know, lazy, um, you know, shiftless, uh, black women are considered open market, constantly, constantly soliciting sex. Uh, we, uh, black males are, are stereotyped as not caring for their children or wanting to, um, you know, be a part of a, a family unit, you know, so uh, we've had a, had a lot of negative images put on us, so it affects our self-esteem. So if your self-esteem is low, then that can uh, lead to feeling uh, depression, feeling depressed or helpless. It, it has also um, affected our, um, you know, our physical health. I know for myself, uh, having to suppress my anger for so long towards uh, white people, um, you know, it would, it affected my blood pressure and I consider myself to be a very healthy person. You know, I do eat one meal a day and stop eating beef and pork at the age of 22. So uh, I have a very healthy lifestyle, but yet I still develop high blood pressure. And they say it was genetic, but I think uh, what I noticed is that I had to suppress my anger all the time. You know, even after being, you know, trained with the nation, being at work, um, you know, having white co-workers uh, get away with things that I knew was wrong, that I couldn't get away with, or mistreating other patients and stuff like that, I would stifle my anger. And so that would cause my blood pressure to be high in those situations. Now, when I got home and could meditate, it would go down. So that's one way it can cause you to have physical problems. And then it definitely contributes to uh, depression. Now, as I was preparing to... Uh, come on the show tonight to speak with you all. One thing that I found out is that um, for the first time ever in history, the suicide rate for black people has, has uh, risen in particular for young black children between the ages of five and 11, their rate of suicide is significantly higher than white children of the same age. And that's major right now in the mental health community. So you got young black boys and girls between the ages of five and 11, uh, they're killing themselves at a higher rate than their white counterparts. And now the interesting part about that is all of the um, other psychologists and other professionals, they don't seem to know what, why that is the case. But so uh, I did some additional research and this um, study is in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association. It, uh, uh, it was, they did the, the study came out in 2015 and then they repeated it again this year. And the results uh, continue to um, show that black children between the ages of five and 11 are committing suicide at a higher rate than white children. One of the reasons uh, is that, you know, our society has become more conscious now um, because we are, we have access to more information. Um, people are, are, are more receptive to like, People like the minister, people like Dick Gregory, uh, you got books like the, uh, the new uh, Jim Crow, books like that. So we're becoming more conscious and we're teaching our children. However, you know, they said that ignorance is bliss. So um, this is just a theory I have that 
because we are informing our children more about what racism is and how what our experiences have been with white people. Um, we, but we don't have an answer for it. We haven't stopped it. So uh, the children are becoming more and more depressed. And then you're seeing these uh, death rituals uh, played out on television with the murder of Trayvon Martin, um, you know, Michael Brown. And we see this on Facebook or social media. And every time you click on that image, you're being traumatized by it. So that may be one of the reasons why children are choosing to uh, take such an extreme measure of suicide. And the method of suicide that these black children are using is very extreme. It's strangulation and then jumping off high structures. So it's a very impulsive behavior. And uh, the study also looked at two children here in DC. One child killed himself this year uh through strangulation and then another child uh at the end of last year did the same thing right here in dc so and also comes uh you know cyber bullying too and then just seeing uh, a lot of you know, gruesome images of uh, racism activities by the police and then helplessness by the people that should protect them which is their parents and maybe facing racism from authority figures like teachers at schools or maybe police officers in the community well, that's a that's a, that's a very sobering uh, statistic. It's it's it's, sad. it's depressing in itself because you know our children are our future, and so if they're checking out that early. That's pretty sad. Oh, I I, I didn't know that. Um, I have seen um, just from my review of social media because I'm always looking for trends. I have noticed the increase in uh, suicides among our children, and I and I thought about years ago, fifteen twenty years ago as a people suicide was not something of, of a high interest to us in comparison to other cultures mm -hmm. and what was curious to know of, of what was causing the suicide rate uh, to increase among our children um wow it's just interesting um facts yeah, that you that you presented it's like wow yeah and uh what's disappointing to me is the other uh scholars um, the other psychologists and social workers they're saying uh they don't know why they're saying that it's a lack of access possibly to uh, quality mental health treatment that may be a factor or the stigma that black people tend to associate with getting mental health treatment maybe so but with 13 year olds uh from the age of 13 on up our numbers are are, are good we are we are not committing suicide at a higher rate than uh, other races of people. And I just want to go on record to say, I think suicide is sad for anybody. You know, it's, it's, it's a sad thing. Uh, but, you know, it's very sad to know that somebody as young as five has that thought and then has a plan and has actually carried it out. And that's alarming. And uh, of course it hits close to home because I'm black and I got black grandchildren. So. Um, but I would would have liked to have seen some of the the scholars to take uh, to think just to be a little bit more honest. You know the effects of racism. I, I think I found maybe one or two people that took took the leap to say that that it was uh, possibly all of the stuff that's been happening in our society to other young people. You know, just being killed and no consequence, and then. Also, they're saying that black parents are sitting down and having that talk with our kids. This is what it means to be black. We think and we're preparing them, which we are, but it's a consequence to it too, because you're telling them about this, these uh, negative and hateful people 
but then we don't have an answer to it. And then to, for your child to know that you as a mother or father cannot protect them from hunter or forest next door, that's, that's, that's pretty debilitating. Because I remember knowing probably about the age of five or six, you know, that my mother couldn't protect me from the white kids next door. That, it was up to me to protect myself. So. Dr. Turner, this is Akela. Um, I just wanted to follow up with you on that because I've read the same study that, that you're talking about. Yeah. And, and I did read how our numbers are not that high when we become teenagers. Right. So I'm listening, but how do you kind of reconcile that with if, if at 13 we're not doing the same thing that perhaps somebody would do at 11. What's the shift between the younger years and the teen years? The uh, numbers are showing that the rates are not high among uh, black teenagers, mm -hmm. but we're seeing it in the younger children. I'm just wondering what is the shift? Because I would imagine that the older children are the ones that have more access to exactly. the internet and to all of these different things that we're seeing whereas the younger children aren't. Okay, well, well, the difference, you can look at it developmentally. Uh, when you're between the ages of five and 11, you're, you're prone to be a little bit more impulsive. And some children about the age of four and five, they don't necessarily know that death is not, that death is not reversible. If you do it, it's forever. And so when you're younger, you tend to be more impulsive. The brain isn't as developed. And then when you're a teenager, you start to go into thinking a little bit about consequences a little bit more so but i think it's the issue of impulsivity and then two another factor is that in the white households uh, suicide had went down for that age group because white parents seem to get the lesson a little bit quicker or have have um how can i better say this they have taken better steps to secure their homes like they have firearms they're going to take that extra step they have the guns and stuff put away or locked up they may you know, um, take extra measures. Well, we may not because we didn't think our children would even talk about it or do something like that. So it's impulsivity. And it's like, um, I guess you can say education about safety measures in the home. I think it's also a lack of, of um, understanding because I, I don't know about them feeling I'm just, I'm just curious because if they feel like that they can't be protected, I mean, it's, it's kind of a different time period from when we were growing up. Right. And mm -hmm. it just, it just seems that they would feel more protected by their parents than not, but you never know. I mean, does it, it just in the study, because I don't, I don't know this, is it like a certain segment of black society where you're seeing these numbers in the youth or is it, or is it just across the board? Just, I mean, the socioeconomic factors play a role. In uh, it, did, it did not indicate uh, that if you had, if you were from a higher socioeconomic class that suicide, uh, that you had a, that was a barrier. So money wasn't a barrier. I just, uh, it didn't say that. It just seemed to be across the board. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and when we talk about protection, uh, a, a child may feel like, well, maybe a parent can protect you to a certain degree. But when you're seeing um, other youth, like uh, Michael Brown or Trayvon Martin being killed. And you see that, that image played, replayed over and over and then there was no justice. We saw a weeping mother, a, a broken, grieving father, but no justice. Um, 
the, it was another kid. Uh, his first name was Kendrick. Uh, he was killed shortly after Trayvon. He was found uh, rolled up in a rug at a in a gym, and his organs had been removed. So not only was he killed, or he he died under mysterious circumstances. His his corpse was violated, and still they, they, there has been no um, no answers, no justice. And so it's like the boogeyman has has become real you know when we're kids we be afraid of the dark and afraid of you know ghosts and all of this but now somebody's actually doing something to uh to us or to them and nothing is happening it sounds like to me that maybe parents need to take a, a closer look and that perhaps they should limit right. their conversation or the exposure of children exactly. we may be telling them too much too soon so um so I, I wrote down here, the burden of, of being conscious versus ignorance is bliss. So, you know, I think we should tailor our conversations to a child's age, you know. So we want to tell them certain things, but not too much and too too fast. But not to do like our parents, like my parents. They didn't tell me anything about racism. I just, it just hit me in the face. So we had a boycott in my town uh, maybe two years before uh, I started first grade where the whole town um, went up in flames because of racism after Martin Luther King's assassination. I grew up about 45 minutes from Memphis. And um, I think it hadn't been 10 years since Dr. King was killed. And so we were still segregated. And um, and it was a big conflict with the black versus the white. And I remember the town burning, but I remember nobody ever talked about it. And I just had this faint memory of it. And I put something on Facebook and my um, cousins who my mother raised, they were in high school at the time and their generation started speaking out on Facebook about it. But, you know, they were attacked by the police and they had to set out of school a, a whole year because nobody could protect them. And then they couldn't go back to school because the police and, you know, white officials were the ones actually um, attacking them doing this so-called um, riot and boycott in my town. I wanted to kind of go back to your uh, dissertation mm -hmm. and the cognitive and psychosocial basis of racial inferiority. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just kind of curious about that. Like, um, what did you discover? I know the conversation that we're having today, because it seems like that, obviously, the inferiority is part mm -hmm. of the effects. Right. Well, what I looked at, I, I was inspired by Dr. Frances Cress Wilson, her book, The ISIS Papers. And, um, and she was inspired by uh, Neely Fuller, who uh, spoke about um, racism uh, and white supremacy. Uh, and they looked, he talked, Neely Fuller talked about the nine activities, uh, nine act, people activities. And he, he described them as economics, education, entertainment, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war. So what I did in my dissertation, I looked at some major institutions. I looked at politics, medicine, education, and um, healthcare. And what I found out, I looked at those major institutions and I saw the debate how racism started uh, with a, first it started with religion where there was a belief that we were inferior because of, you know, Ham and all of that from the Bible, we was cursed. And from that, that inspired the politicians to decide that 
you know, legally we were considered inferior, um, three fifths of a human being and one drop of, you know, you know, the, the, the one fifth rule, I think it's the one drop of black blood rule. And the fact that, um, we weren't even considered human beings. So that was the politics. And then that led into, we started forming institutions like, um, you know, education uh, facilities. We were, we were not given adequate um, buildings or materials to be educated. Uh, the government put in place the Freedmen's Bureau to help us to become educated. But the Freedmen's Bureau basically sabotaged our education. Uh, we had substandard textbooks. Um, if you grew up like I, my mother did, if you were a sharecropper or, or came from a farming family, the only days you could go to school is if it rained or the weather was uh, bad or inclement weather. So my mother, they went to school the first day and got a couple of books and didn't go back again unless they had bad weather. And then in the, in the fields of medicine, um, we were pretty much used as uh, guinea pigs uh, to be experimented on. Um, you have the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Um, you have Henrietta Lack. I talked about that back then in my dissertation. So we were just at every turn we were being sabotaged and or just um used and just set up to fail in every avenue so then i uh ended it with looking at social services and i actually did a case study on a patient i was treating she was a black woman had lost her children to dcfs and um all of those factors had affected her you know uh, religion, seeing Jesus is white, uh, depressed all the time. She didn't feel like, you know, she, she always thought God was mad at her, you know, that she just couldn't do enough to please God. And then, you know, she had an inferior education. Um, the judicial system had failed her a number of times. And then she, now she had to come see me for social services to, for me to talk to her about her depression or her problems or not having her children so it was just a vicious cycle so i i was able to see the racism in all of those five major institutions that we are we you know you can't escape it you got to have politics you got to have medicine you got to have uh i guess you can choose to have religion and uh social services so it's just it's like a cancer racism is um it just kind of eats away at the person I have a question for you, and I have this fascination with intelligence tests, so I, I love mm -hmm. to read up on them, but um, I, I've read various articles where it's definitely a big tool with white supremacy. How has the, the, the use of intelligence tests um, by the white supremacists have affected the mental health of our children? And adults, because I mean, if he's an adult, you, you was a, once a young child that was subject to being your intelligence being measured. Uh, but can you shed some light on that? Okay. Well, uh, the famous uh, book or whatever is called the Bell Curve Study um, by um, Charles Murray, and they talked about black people uh, being um, basically, uh, you know, inferior in terms of education towards white people that we do worse on um, standardized tests and tests of intelligence in comparison to white people. Uh, we uh, supposedly score like a whole standard deviation lower than whites, uh, but the test itself is fraught with uh, problems. For example, uh, uh, the IQ test is mainly based on what you're exposed to. So if you grew up in a home with 
educated parents, you'll be exposed to more topics, uh, more things. Um, and then it's certain things that black children um, may not know the formal names for certain things. Say for example, um, the word sink. That's one of the items on the test question. Children are shown a picture of a sink and you ask, what is that? Some kids would mispronounce it, like call it a zinc, like down south, it's uh, diction. But you're not saying it right, so you're not scored for it. Then you also have the issue of examiner bias. So if you have a white person administering a IQ test to a black child, they may, their uh, standards may be a little bit more harsher towards a white child. Um, say for example, a child may know the word fool or the, or the word lie, but you're told that's a bad word. So you may, they may not say the word. They may know it, but may not say it because they think they're cursing. Another thing is a picture of a, of a man with a turban on his head. Now, when you show that picture to a child, the question is, what is this article? We, we'll call that what is this uh, item or what does he have on his head, you know? So the, the black child would say, it's Jesus, because he got the turban on and the, the long thing. So they're scored wrong. <laughs> but the answer is a turban. Now, how many black children have, you know, when I was growing up, ever heard of the word turban or even saw people with turbans on you see what i'm saying so if you're if you're restricted in your culture and you're not exposed to certain things you're not going to know about it so the test is normed on what a white child is exposed to as opposed to what what i may have been exposed to or told certain things if you're not around it you're not going to know and just like something as simple as a faucet you know most kids know what it is functionality but the official name faucet you may not know that but so that doesn't mean that you're you know not intelligent but you just you never had any form of knowledge or, or training of what that term is so so, so it's, it's fraught with biases and it was used in an un, unjust way to um you know to put black children um in special education and you know special education that program um was an experiment that was started in Arkansas, where I'm from, where they um, unjustly put a lot of black children in special education classes. Um, and sometimes it was something as simple as you couldn't understand their diction. It wasn't that they were slow or, or, or not smart, it's just the way we spoke. So you put somebody in a slower class, you separate them from the other children, you know you're different because you're in the slow kids class, you're on the short bus, you know, so you get these this stigma and then we become afraid of tests and then we have test anxiety so it's just a whole you know whole bunch of things but white children they're sent to uh, camps in the summer to just take tests they see their parents reading more you know nobody in their like nobody in their house seems to be afraid of books or learn or reading uh, white boys are not teased for being smart black boys are you know when you become a teenager, you want to have other attributes than reading, you know. I don't know no other race that's teased for being too smart, but you're black, you're too smart. You know, Chris Rock even talked about it in his comedy. He said, nobody cares if you got a master's degree. Don't come around here with all that counting. <laughs> <laughs> so what you call your master or something? <laughs> This you you know what? You you that's so true because I, I 
I remember my daughter coming home to me one day uh, from school and she was upset mm-hmm. with the amount of bullying that was going on in her school mm-hmm. and the type of students that were being bullied. They either had some type of learning disability, like a stutter or a learning disability, or either they had like a stuttering problem or they may mm-hmm. have had a physical disability. Mm-hmm. And um, she would just be appalled at how other children tease them. Yeah. And, 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 it's it's so sad. I'm not to say that other cultures do not tea, do not bully as well. I mean, statistically they do, but it's just just to uh, support what you're saying. My daughter come would come home countless times talking about the type of students they were bullied. It's either mm-hmm. smart children or the children who were had the like I said, like the disabilities. And it's just so sad that in our community, um, the, how the effects of white supremacy has shaped the way we think. Right. on how we should view one another and view ourselves. Our values, we value certain things in our culture, you know, and uh, and unfortunately, there was a time where it wasn't a lot of value placed on, you know, or transmitted to children about it's okay to be smart. You know, and, some, and some, not in every home, but, uh, you know, children got that, black children got that from somewhere, you know, wanting to downplay how smart they were, wanting to dumb it down especially with uh, black boys. And then also, um, it was a book written called The the Black Male Fourth Grade Failure Syndrome. Uh, it's a black author in Chicago, Dr. Kawanja, uh, Kawanza Jun, I can't pronounce his last name, but he's in Chicago. He wrote this book called The Black Male Fourth Grade Fail- Failure oh, Syndrome. Yeah. Right, uh, I know you're talking about that. They have no desire to even be in school because you know, by the time black boys are born, they're, they're smarter than you know, their white counterparts. You know, they're, they, they meet their developmental milestones quicker. The black female child is more advanced than the black male and other babies and other races. But for some reason with the black male, by the time they get in the fourth grade, that desire to learn it, it has been just uh, the spirit is broken, uh, and because if they can do the same act as a white male child can do in the classroom, they may be a little excited about recess, or maybe a little excited to see their fellow classmate uh, coming to school, and they can engage in the same behavior. But the black male child, his behavior will be considered too aggressive, acting out. He's immediately punished or sent to the office. But if Forrest does it, well, he's just, you know, he just has a lot of energy. I mean, he was just so glad to see uh, Philip today. But you let a black child do the same thing, he's going to be, uh, his, his responses are going to be way more punitive. And he's going to be sent to the office a lot quicker. So you're constantly getting rejected. So by the time you get to the fourth grade, you're like, I, mean, I would rather just not be here, you know. I would rather be with my friends or that's how by the time they get in eighth grade or junior high school they're dropping out they're hanging out with their friends you know they would rather be with them in the community than at school being made to feel you know worthless and not value or overlooked you know you can have a bunch of children know the answer to a question but if that if that white teacher doesn't pick that black child then he's stifled then or if I can commit the, I can engage in the same behavior as my white um, peer, but I'm gonna have a much harsher uh, consequence if I do the same thing he does. You know, we both engage in horse playing, but my may my behavior may result in a suspension. 
kids might just be, oh, Hunter, don't do that. You know, so. <laughs> you know, Dr. Steffi, this is uh, Lockheed Shea Nidera. I'm laughing because every time <laughs> I hear you say Hunter. And, um, yeah, that's my name for them. <laughs> Hunter, Hunter. and <laughs> yes. I'm cracking up because I don't know I don't know many hunters yes that is hilarious mm -hmm. and the subliminal uh -huh. thing the subliminal message be behind hunter and forest as mm -hmm. Dr. Okay. Hakima just mentioned mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily saying get to it right now <laughs> but we know that this is exactly a part of some of the reasons that many of us as black people suffer because we are hunted down mm -hmm. not only in a damn forest you but on the streets of just about any city mm -hmm. nationwide and worldwide so mm -hmm. as i listen to you i'm cracking laughing because I yeah. I hear you I understand <laughs> hunter and forest okay right. because mm -hmm. we're being hunted in the mm -hmm. forest of the hells of North America on a daily basis 24 <laughs> mm -hmm. exactly. um, with that being said you earlier you mentioned um, two of my favorite people which you in black America you cannot talk about uh, mental health and the effects of racism or racism and the effects of mental health without talking about our beloved um, late Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, yes. as well as her mentor, our brother um, Neely um, Fuller. Mm -hmm. Now, our brother mentioned, or one of his famous quotes is, if you do not understand white supremacy, racism, mm -hmm. what it is, and how it works, everything else that you understand will only confuse you, confuse you exactly. um has mm -hmm. always been one of my favorite um quotes by him mm -hmm. and um another thing that he mentions he talks about or he says that the fear frustration the malice and confusion that is caused by racism retards or prevents all constructive activity between the people of the known universe. Now, with that being said, I want you to talk a little bit about white genetic survival mm -hmm. and the impact that it has on our black mental health, Ooh. which kind of goes back to goes back to Forrest mm -hmm. and damn Hunter. But <laughs> there you go. I'll, let, I'll, let you, I'll let you touch on that for just a minute. <laughs> Well, at the crux of white supremacy uh, is uh, the fear of genetic annihilation. That's why white supremacy is, is a, it's a structured system. And it's basically a game that white people play. And it's a game of survival for them because they know that they can be genetically annihilated by black people, in particular, the black man, because the black man can, and he can genetically annihilate their bloodline you know, he can mate with two or three white women in one day and shut down one white man's bloodline. And that's what they're afraid of. And so that's why they have this, this elaborate system in place to just to stop, subvert, kill, lock up the black male. So that's why at, you can go to a, any prison and you'll see the majority black men there or non-white people there, anybody with any melanin, you can find them 
locked up in a prison because if they don't kill them, they want to lock them up because the point is they want to keep them, keep us from reproducing and then to stop us from having um, any opportunity to annihilate them genetically because a white man cannot genetically annihilate anyone, but a black man can genetically annihilate a white male. So that's why he goes to these terrific lengths, you know, to kill, hurt, subvert us. So that's, that's the whole point of uh, white supremacy. Ooh, that was, you dropped a heavy one. I want to read something. Uh, it's the Virginia Code of 1705. Mm. Yeah, 1705, but once I read it, it would be like, you say 2018? No, Virginia Code of 1705. Removed criminal consequences for killing a slave, or just, just say black person, mm -hmm. in the act of correcting them. Mm. Isn't that deep? It's and it was re referred to as a, the Casual Killing Act. Slaves lack the most basic protection under law, the right of self-preservation. Now, I know that says there was a Virginia Code of 1705, but we're dealing with that in 2018, where a, 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 a white person can kill us in the act of correcting us or, quote unquote, standing their ground and defending us. That we have no right, we have no right under the law of self-preservation. So. Mm -hmm even though that says 1705, mm -hmm. all slave codes are still in effect. Our people it's need to understand that. And it is ultimately affecting our existence. Um, we need to wake up and recognize this. Thank you exactly. so much for, for pointing mm -hmm. that out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so, and, and the reason why, you know, they can just kill us outright, and then Dr. Francis Christ Wilson spoke about justifiable homicide. So that's what we're seeing today with, with the police killings. Uh, a police officer, anytime you see a police officer shoot, kill, or maim a black person, they're going to get away with it because technically it's a justified act because that white officer feels a extra layer of, of, of a threat to their integrity of their well-being or their life because they already know that, that they can be genetically annihilated by that black man. So that's number one. If he mates with a white woman, he can genetically stop his bloodline. And then two, they, in their mind, they're constantly have these thoughts about us being violent, that we're gonna do to them what they did to us. So they, they already see us as a viable, clear and present threat and a danger. So when they shoot you, other white people, the other white jurors, they understand, you know, I'm afraid of them too, you know? So they keep saying, well, I thought he had a gun. And they know that, Nine times out of 10, there is no gun. And if, if, you know, so they get away, they would wind up getting away with it because it's justified in the minds of white people because our lives are not valued and they have to, you know, eliminate us because the, the, their very existence is constantly being threatened. Because they're not producing as many children as they would like. They have a lot more of their people dying, uh, you know, getting old and dying. So that's, you know, why they have, what they, why they call it the doomsday clock. You got, for every one person you have dying, getting old and dying, you need to have some younger person having children. And so, you know, white women, um, fertility rates are not as impressive as ours. So, you know, it's a problem. They have more people dying than they have being born. And then they're the only people on the planet that likes melanin. 
and you can just mate with this one person and your bloodline could be terminated. So it's a constant threat. So they're, they will always get away with killing us as a police officer. It's always going to be justified. Yeah, so true. I, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us, they have quite a few of our, our, our black scholars, um, can't actually prove it, but many of our, our black scholars have projected that there was a meeting um, between the KKK and President Nixon. Mm. We'll take off these hoods if we can put on that blue. So, I mean, and understanding that history, wow. whether, whether, whether we could, whether we could prove that or not, the action is being proven because they ain't wearing hoods no more. They wearing badges. That's right. That's, that's and then, right. They're, then they're going over to Israel and being trained, uh, you know, with, with coming back with these Mossad type tactics, these uh, one one move chokeholds, breaking people's neck, killing killing somebody. You're supposed to be restraining somebody for selling some cigarettes on the street and they wind up dead because they're using much more lethal means to uh, so-called control us. And New York uh, City police officers, uh, they spent a whole lot of money sending their officers over to Israel uh, to be trained to come back really? with these aggressive tactics. Wow, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, as an officer myself, you know, in your training, you go through what is called control tactics. Mm -hmm. So you, you're taught how to subdue someone. You're taught how to take them down to restrain them. But mm -hmm. When people say on the streets, oh, in the streets, oh, they don't have the right training. They have the right training. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, they use yeah, that. They, they use the right training when they're dealing with the Caucasian, and they don't kill them. Right. Like the escalation tactics. Yes, right. They use the escalation tactics when it's Caucasian people, but not when it's us. I mean, like the one, the guy John. I think his name is John Cow, who mm -hmm. just the man that, that stabbed Nia Wilson in in California. Mm -hmm. he stabbed yeah. her and her sister I think her sister's name is Stephanie but he stabbed her mm -hmm. when they arrested him there was no practically mm -hmm. no force used but we know if it had been a black man he'd be dead by now mm -hmm. exactly so, and, I mean they, they are properly trained in control tactics so they know exactly. and you're right they know how they know how to take that to the extremity of death and they know how to restrain mm -hmm. from using it mm -hmm. so you're right Right. And like I said, it's, New York is number one in sending their, their officers there, all the way uh, overseas, uh, to be trained with these uh, lethal tactics. And Chicago is doing the same thing. You know, the minister talked about that uh, also about the uh, police officers. And, you know, especially when uh, Ferguson, uh, the riots broke out in Ferguson after they killed uh, that young man, uh, Mike Brown. And they found out that, um, you know, that the police, you know, were, were had these extreme measures to deal with, like, small crowds for a, a protest. And um, so, like I said, New York is, like, the most aggressive, and in Chicago, it's not too far behind. Wow. And not only with the weapons they're using, not with the, not only the bullets, the guns, um, and also, like, you know, these restraint methods are very lethal. And you never hear about them using those methods on a white person. You never heard a white person dying from being choked out by the police. No, you hear about them going through a Burger King drive-thru to get mm -hmm. dinner after they've shot up <laughs> nine people inside of a church. That's, right. what, that's what you hear. Rewarding um, them. Rewarding exactly. Them. And, they, and, know, they, they're re and see, so that's the game they play. They're rewarding mm -hmm. uh, somebody like Dylan Roof because 
all those black people he killed in that church, you know, that's a point scored for them. Absolutely. You, you, you make such an excellent point, the last point. That's a point scored for them. And that's exactly how they look at it. And this is why they can have a rally with the Ku Klux Klan can decide that they want to have a rally and all these other um, white supremacist organizations because they know that they are supporting one another. This is how um, um, this dialing group can Absolutely. Even um, after that incident happened with the shooting in Carolina, mm -hmm. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know if the dollar amount, but it was in the millions mm -hmm. that was raised for within a matter this, of minutes. Within, do you hear me? Within a matter of millions minutes. in a matter of minutes, because minutes. you took out, you took out the life of mm -hmm. nine black people. Mm -hmm. And your and people behind you. Come on now. So mm -hmm. we we have to um, see the point of white we, supremacy. Yeah. It's a game mm -hmm. that they're playing to win. And think about you know just like the Chicago Bulls when they had their dynasty of winning in basketball. In order for mm -hmm. them to have been that successful, all of those players had to know the game, the rules, yes. the plays. Everybody was on the same page. If you didn't know the rules and the fundamentals of that game, they could not have become champions. So white supremacists, their whole strategy is to keep us guessing. We have to wonder, well, I wonder why the police got off for killing uh, Trayvon Martin or why they get off for killing uh, Mike Brown or why did they get off for killing uh, beating up Rodney King? Because we don't know the game. We don't know when, it, we don't know we don't realize that we are being hunted. Hunted and, 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 and killed and, and, and corpse left hanging in, in a forest. That's what Neely Fuller was saying. This, is, this is what they do. This, this is like, they do. like you talked about a game. People, my, my, my beloved listeners out here, know that this is real talk. You, yeah. you, we, I, I playfully mentioned Forrest and Hunter. But do you know that there are, there's a forest out there, not just the streets mm -hmm. of any major city, but there's a real green forest. See, these movies mm -hmm. that you see on the big screen, mm -hmm. we go out and we get all caught up into the action. Hmm. One of the things that I recall the Honorable Elijah Muhammad making mention of is that he's going to show it on the screen first, meaning mm -hmm. your open enemy your mortal enemy, he's going to show it on the screen first, but if mm -hmm. he's showing it on the screen, know that he's already done it. And I'm not saying first. Exactly. He's already done it. Yeah. So when it's you see some of these, these um, um, what is what is um, that um, one movie that they have so many parts to it, but basically about yeah. what we're talking about, where yeah. the black man and woman is being hunted in the forest. Mm -hmm. um, I forget the name of it. But they have a, yeah, they have a, yeah, uh -huh. they have a lot of these. It's symbolic. It's symbolic. Mm -hmm. All of these things are symbolic of us. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things um, that uh, our sister, Dr. Frances Cress Wellsing, uh, mentioned, she said historically, white males worldwide have suffered the deep sense of male inferiority and inadequacy because they represent a mutant, genetically recessive. Mm -hmm minority population that can mm -hmm. be genetically annihilated by all non-white people. Mm -hmm. You mentioned this earlier, and so I'm really bearing witness to what you said earlier. She also goes on to say that the gun as a symbol in the white supremacy system or culture 
She said it cannot be banned because it is the symbolic phallus substitute for the white male. The white penis. male's penis, penis and his testicles genetically cannot annihilate black and other non-white males. But mm -hmm. his gun can. Mm -hmm. Therefore, to ban the gun for the white male is to castrate him symbolically mm -hmm. and to remove his defense mechanism for the ever-present threat on white genetic annihilation. There you go. So Ooh, everything that you deep. mentioned earlier, and when right. we talk about these got doggone mm -hmm. games mm -hmm. <laughs> that are being played with us mentally, mm -hmm. see, they, they start mentally first. Right. Because They're if you get us, us mentally, mm -hmm. then everything else is going to fall in submission. Exactly. If you can take away our ability to just think for ourselves, okay. to just, hell, just think about what makes sense or what does not make sense, like you, you mentioned earlier, while they already know the answer, mm -hmm. they have us over here trying to figure it out. It's no yeah. different from somebody who has a poker face, you exactly. know? Or, or, mm -hmm. or what's the purpose in a, a game of blackjack, spades, or, you know, poker? You don't want your opposition to um, know exactly what you're thinking. So you're going to mm -hmm. always fool them. You're going to always trap them mentally first. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly. exactly what is being done to us. Mm -hmm. And that's so, why they keep mm -hmm. us thinking that they love us. Uh, and all yes. of these songs that have come out over the last 20, 30 years have something to do with love or peace. And it's none of that. They're hunting us. We're at war, and that's why that's one of the one of the uh, nine activities of uh, uh, people activities that Neely Fuller talked about. Yes, yes. We're, Akeela, we're at war. you had a question for Dr. Turner. Um, yeah, I really want to, at this point, ask how can we, as Black people, undo the damage that's being done. There was a, a, a book that's out, uh, I, I believe her name is Joy DeGry, called uh, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Right, mm-hmm. Yes, Dr. And, Joy. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I would love for you to kind of touch on post-traumatic slave syndrome. Mm -hmm. And is that what's really going with, on with most of us? Because a lot of times they say that even in our communities with all the crime and all this stuff, we have post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. But also, as a community, it seems that we probably really do have post-traumatic slave syndrome. Mm -hmm. We do. So you could just kind of touch on that. But then also, after that, talk about how do we protect our mental health as it pertains to all of these things. Okay. All right. Well, the main thing I want people to take away from the, the, the horrors of uh, white supremacy and racism is that you know, it's, it's, it's an abusive act. And, it's, and so we are, we are abused. And, and if you're abused, that can lead to feelings of, uh, of trauma. And, um, and so anybody that's victimized, uh, victimized people commonly develop emotional or psychological problems that's typically secondary to their abuse. And that can include anxiety, depression, and uh, other types of disorders. Uh, but the main one that it tends to lead to is like, something like post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's what uh, the author you spoke of was um, comparing it to. 
And so, um, and people that are suffering from uh, like post-traumatic stress disorder, they tend to fall victim to using substances to, to try to cope with the trauma uh, or, you know, they may become withdrawn or isolated. And, um, and one of the other things is that uh, people, victims of post-traumatic slave uh, disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, they experience vivid, unwanted, and highly intrusive memories of the traumatic event. Uh, the intrusive recollections may occur during waking hours or during sleep, often in the form of vivid and repetitive nightmares reenacting the trauma. And I'm going to pause right there on that topic uh, be, uh, and bring up this point. That's why those images that we've seen over the last three to four years of different people, Black men and Black women like Sandra Bland being killed by the police, we're seeing these graphic images. For us to see that in our mind subconsciously, see the subconscious mind can't tell if something's a joke or if it's the truth. It just knows that it happened. So you know, we're experiencing this all over again, and it's causing us to have physiological and psychological reaction. We're having anxiety about it. We're going to bed dreaming about it. We're anxious about being out in society. We have to um, have this uncomfortable conversation with our children about how to behave if, if you've got kids that can drive a car. If the police pull you over, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. You know, forgetting the fact that they're just learning to drive, and got to navigate the environment. You have to worry about helping this adult white male that's an authority figure manage his emotions. You know, if he pulls you over and you say the wrong thing, you could end up dead. That's a lot of stress and anxiety. And the second thing that victims of post-traumatic um, stress disorder, they make uh, extreme efforts to, to avoid exposing themselves to anything that may remind them of their trauma. And just like each of you ladies, uh, I wonder do in, any of you all have uh, any like apprehension or resistance to looking at any any slave movies or any race-based movies? Uh, you know, I have to prepare myself before I can sit down and watch. Like when a new movie comes out about like when 12 years a slave came out, I couldn't just go see it. I had to ease my way into it because I didn't feel like it making me sad or anxious did any of you all feel that way can you just watch it makes me angry what it makes me angry too um for me it's not that i could not watch it i did have to prepare myself but i was ready <laughs> it's kind of i was ready for war so it's like my thinking was yeah let me go to this movie so i can <laughs> so mm -hmm. i can see some stuff so that I can hype myself up to prepare myself to go. And do, and you do, know. You think, do you think your do you think your white colleague Hope and Grace have to prepare themselves <laughs> to watch a movie? There you well, go, just live it on message. There you go. You're tracking with me, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So and, yeah, they definitely had to prepare themselves. <laughs> they definitely had to prepare themselves. But, but they, they, they kind of don't. They okay. just show up and eat popcorn. <laughs> exactly. You said they, that's they what I They're, they're not going to be traumatized because they're going to well, win. They're well, they have to prepare it. themselves for me after oh, I've seen go. it. They need to. Because <laughs> that's what I'm saying. After I've seen it, now I'm hyped. <laughs> like after seeing the Django. That's the Django. Okay. You know, I, I was I was ready. So yeah, they needed to prepare themselves for me. You, but you make mm -hmm. an excellent point. <laughs> With hope and grace, they don't have to they don't have to uh 
prepare themselves. They just show up. Yeah, and they have our brothers in movies. Uh, you know, I took a class called Psychology of Media. Our black males, like uh, Brother Wesley Snipes, he played in uh, movies where the black male would go to, to another country to save this white woman or this mm. pretty new white child, you know. You know, they're, they're, I mean, they'll dodge bullets, jump on moving trains, stick their head in their mouth. Think about what that did to us. Mm -hmm. See, we, <laughs> we're not looking at this. I want us to really look at the trauma, Black man and Black woman. So it makes us feel rejected. Not Absolutely. As, not, as, Absolutely. Not, not as needed. And I'm going to tell you, uh, what was those movies where um, the little short white guy and Danny Glover played in The Lethal Weapon? Mm. You know, they had lethal weapon one and two. Do you notice now, Danny Glover stands about six foot something tall and uh, Mel Gibson, the little short white guy. Mel Gibson could outrun a Danny Glover. Anytime they got into a confrontation, Danny Glover wound up on the floor. Oh, and uh, mm -hmm. the little short mm -hmm. Mel Gibson had to come around. And <laughs> you're right, you're right, you're right. You're right. Off the floor. After I analyzed that first lethal weapon, I couldn't stand to watch the other ones that followed because I... It kept portraying the black man as incompetent, clumsy. He could yes. never quite get his gun to shoot. He could never quite get a punch to land. He was a buffoon. He was buffoon. So then why, if he can't protect us, if he's constantly falling down, he can barely run, he can't get his gun to shoot, then now me, as a woman, what is that doing to my mind? Maybe well, you, you know what, he, right, he maybe can't protect me. Well, maybe I need to go and get with this one. Okay, there you go. Maybe I should maybe choose another hue to be my partner in life because maybe this black man doesn't have what it takes, what I need to protect me and my children or me and my offspring. Mm -hmm. there you go. All of these things being dropped on our mind affecting our mental health. But see, they're playing this game to win. And say, for example, like uh, uh, Danny Glover kept falling down, couldn't get up and run. Like, Dr. Chris Wilson said uh, the white man started dressing us like in the yes. 70s in high heels. So you can't run after nobody, the white man, to, 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 to help defend us because you got on heels. Now they're putting our brothers in dresses. Hmm. You know, uh, these new entertainers coming out with dresses and wearing women's shoes. So how are you going to defend me and help me and protect me? You got on a dress and some heels. How mm. fast can you run mm. to get to our baby that may be trapped in a car or something? You got on heels. So, you got so, on skinny jeans. So, so basically, you know, one of the first things we need to understand in overcoming the detriment of white supremacy, we have to understand that we are at war. And this game they running on us. Pretty much what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you on that one. What else can we do to overcome the effects of white supremacy? Basically, do what we're doing tonight, having these conversations about it, these honest questions, these hard-hitting questions about it, and then just being honest about our anger and rage about it, and then, you know, talking about it, and then decoding it, like what we're doing. We're breaking it down. It is an actual game that's being ran on us, and they don't love us. Uh, they don't, they don't want to get along with us. They want us to stay uh, deaf, dumb, and blind, and want us to keep scratching our head and trying to figure out well, why, why, why we didn't get any justice. You because we can't give you any. Because if I gave you justice and let you live, then I can't live because you can genetically right. annihilate me. That's right. 
and, and they're so disrespectful. Do you remember last year during the hurricanes when Puerto Rico got hit real bad? Mm. You know, those were, those were brown, our brown brothers and sisters. That's right. Our president or your president or somebody's president went over there and <laughs> was somebody a relief aid. Okay. Did you, know, did you notice what he was doing with those uh, paper towels? He was jump shooting them, three points. Faking like he's shooting the basketball, throwing it to those brown people. Wow! This ain't no basketball game. I thought about playing the basketballs and 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 that basketball yes. because yes. he ain't got no brown, ain't no brown ball in his hands because his own testicles are not brown and they're not they big. pink and they're exactly. pink and they're not infected. Pink and but pale. He, pink mm -hmm. and pale. But he jumps. He fake shooting some uh ball, some a uh, basketball at the Puerto Ricans who need water. Who need food? Who need their country rebuilt? So, you know, it was symbolic. Yes. But how do we jump shooting some paper towels? <laughs> so let me list uh, let me list what we have so far as far as our solutions. Number one, we have to understand that we're at war. Listen, if you're a person that's being hunted and you don't understand you're at war, the war will continue mm -hmm. because you have not yet come into the understanding or the realization that you are the one being hunted. Uh, number two, we need to talk about this openly in our community, in our households, in our community, but let's be careful with our young five to 11 year olds when we talk about it. We need to censor it because it may be too much for them, so we might have to lightly bring them into it or not bring them into that conversation until they can fully understand it. So talking about it amongst ourselves helps us be able to vent about it and it's a way of release. Age Number three, mm -hmm. right? Age very perfect. Number three is to be honest. We're we're in denial. I mean, you we have our people who are actually in denial. I'm tired of telling people, you know, you're in denial that we are at war. No, they no, that's not it. We don't want to have some listening to this conversation that we're having right now, mm -hmm. and they're going to deny that everything that you're saying and that we're saying. Oh no, that ain't true. They mm -hmm. making this stuff up. You said they. But, but go ahead. I'm, uh, that's that's a whole nother disorder. That's a whole nother disorder. We have to decode it. We have to really break down the actions of the European and, and the actions that he bring on us. We have to break it down and understand it. He's, he's facing, he's facing uh, genetic annihilation. So mm -hmm. if you understand that he is facing genetic annihilation, you can see the haste movement in his destruction afraid. for us. Mm -hmm. He's afraid he's fighting for his life. Mm -hmm. While we came with the earth and we're gonna be here long with long mm -hmm. after he's here and still with the earth, mm -hmm. understand that he's under a limited amount of time. For him, time is something that can be controlled for us, time is a resource. Mm -hmm. uh, the last Teach. one is <laughs> the last one. Uh, you know what? Dr. DeGray said that in her book. <laughs> so I had to yes, give a shout yes. out to her. Uh, she pointed that out. Thank you, sister. I, I love it. I said, it explains why we're so smooth with our time and we're not under mm -hmm. so much pressure. The last mm -hmm. thing that was mentioned was we can't look to our oppressor for justice. We yeah. have to seek justice. And if we're going to sit around and wait and think that he's going to give us justice, we'll all be annihilated by that time. Mm -hmm. So uh, those are the five uh, solutions that is named if there's anything else we need to add to that list i want to add one thing and that is that we have to protect the womb yes. of the black woman exactly. and the womb and the mind of the black children mm -hmm. mm. because think about the fear that goes into 
the unborn child oh my because God. the seed that was given to the mother was made in fear. The mm -hmm. mother carries the seed in fear mm -hmm. and then she produces a child who already comes here afraid of his oppressor mm -hmm. or afraid of her oppressor. We exactly. have to protect the mind of the unborn child and the children that are living so that they'll know that there's none to fear. Mm -hmm. We need to be aware. We need to know what they're up to and that their plan or what their plan is, mm -hmm. but we cannot fear them because if we mm -hmm. continue to fear them, then we've already lost the game. So mm -hmm. protecting the womb of the black woman, and I'm mm -hmm. talking about her mental womb, her mind, mm -hmm. as, well as, as well as protecting the womb, her actual physical womb where she mm -hmm. carries her children for nine months. Because mm -hmm. only two people that's involved in, in the uh, making of life, that's God and the woman. Yeah. Uh, you know what, Dr. Steffi Turner, I want to thank you so much for joining in on us, joining in with us on our podcast. Oh my God, it's been such a blessing to have you on here. We will have to have you come back again. I also want to thank uh, my co-hosts, Akila and Lakashe, uh, for always, every week, co-hosting this wonderful podcast. But Dr. Turner, if there's any last words you would like to say to our listeners. I'm well, what I wanted to say is that, uh, you know, that if there is anyone out there that is having any thoughts about suicide or, or, or feel that, that you're having a mental health crisis, um, you know, at the least, please dial, you know, 911 or, or, or go, uh, you know, call 911 or go to your, your nearest um, outpatient clinic or your, your practitioner if you have any thoughts of harming yourself or things like that. Because suicide is real, not only as we talked about for children, but for just adults, period. So uh, it's a lot of people suffering from depression right now. And some, and some people may be having some thoughts of self-harm because we did talk about it. So it's no shame in um, calling someone and asking for help. And, you know, you can always start out with just a basic phone call, 911, or, um, or calling your local mental health center. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I want to say to our listeners, if you have any additional questions for Dr. Turner, please send them to us at Actual Royal Empress. We will make sure that we forward those to her for her to answer them. And we would definitely uh, answer, have her answer the question for you. So please feel free to do that if you have any more questions uh, for Dr. Steffi Turner. Thank you all. And we look forward to you joining us next week. Join us next week for our conversations with Roy Edwards. Thanks for listening to another episode of Conversations with the Royal Empress. Tune in next week for another enlightening conversation. For more information on the Royal Empress, please visit the website royalempress.org. You can also follow the Royal Empress on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Conversations with the Royal Empress is a subsidiary of the Royal Empress Organization. All rights reserved.